Hi, I'm James Gardner, host of Your History, Your Story, a podcast for everybody who loves stories about interesting people and events told by those who uncovered them from within their own family trees. This, we hope, will inspire you to discover and celebrate your history and your story. What do you do when adversity strikes? Do you see obstacles that can't be overcome, or do you see opportunity and the possibility to transform yourself? In this episode of Your History, Your Story, our guest is Robert Party. Robert is a transformational life coach, speaker, and author of Possibility in Action, A Journey to an Intentional Life. Robert grew up with an alcoholic father and was forced at a young age to develop coping techniques in order to deal with his difficult home life. In college, Robert met Desiree, his future wife. They got married and looked forward to an exciting life together. Little did they know that just prior to Desiree's 31st birthday, while she was studying to become a doctor, she would be diagnosed with an aggressive form of breast cancer. Robert walked hand in hand with her throughout her journey, and their love for each other continued to grow. They had an action plan that compelled them to make the most out of every day they had together. Sadly, Despite her strong will to live and immeasurable courage, Desiree lost her battle with cancer, and Robert was devastated. Trying to find his way again, he leaned into some of the coping skills he developed as a child and the experiences he had during his wife's illness to transform his life. He eventually moved from New York to Italy, where he has become an amazing life coach, using his passion and compassion to help others live their best life. Robert has a special way of connecting with those he encounters. I'd now like to welcome Rob Party to our show. Welcome, Rob. Hey, James. Thank you very much. Great to be here. Well, we're really glad to have you. And one of the beauties of Zoom is that I am in New Jersey and you are in a little village in Italy. Can you tell us where in Italy you live? Sure. I am actually right in the middle of Italy, pretty much. It's a a region called Abruzzo, and it's a town called Pacentro of 900 people. (laughs) 900 people. Well, I detect somewhat of a New York accent. Could you tell us where where were you born and raised? Not in Italy, right? Sure. No, not in Italy. Uh, I was born in the Bronx. So I'm a New York City kid. Um, Also grew up on Long Island. So there's a little bit of that twang in there as well. I thought I could detect the accent a little bit. <laughs> a little bit. I've lived outside of the country for many, many years, so it's not as strong a New York accent. I also grew up on Long Island, so I have some of that as well. We always seem to hold on to that original area that we're from. My mom was from England, and she held on to her accent many years after coming to the United States. And I know other people who wherever they were from originally, they seem to hold on to that if they live there at least into their teens, right? For sure. You know, um, I'll give you a little story about where I live. I actually live where one of my great grandfathers came from. And I knew him when I was a child. You did. Which which is amazing. And he had, I think he was in his 80s by that point, but he still had the Italian twang to his English. Mm, Okay. Now, You lived in New York for how long? Until what age? I think we left Queens. I was 
probably six. And then I was 21, I moved back to New York City. And I was in New York City. It's, it's a little complicated because the Middle East falls in there as well. But I would say I was a New Yorker until 2014. So. <laughs> <laughs> okay, we'll leave it at that right now. Yeah. Uh, terrific. Now, tell us about your childhood. What can you tell us about growing up? Sure. Um, a, a lot of things, actually, because my childhood, while for some of the listeners, uh, it will sound impossible, but um, my childhood was a learning experience more than anything else. It was a type of boot camp because my father was an abusive alcoholic, though not all the time. He sometimes would smother me in kisses and tell me he loved me. It all depended on, I guess, um, how much he drank. I'm really not sure of the reason why. But that was the beginning of me. And it's very odd for a young child, but I, I had somebody great at my side when I was young. But for a young child to start to become introspective and look at a situation as something that I could learn from, manage, and it was temporary. So my childhood, you know, it was a rather normal childhood with respect to friends and, and all of that other stuff. And a lot of people didn't know what happened in the house at all, but it was a situation where I really couldn't wait to get away. So when you were going through that situation, were you fearful in your home? Looking back, I don't necessarily remember being fearful. I, I was cautious. I knew if there were certain songs on the stereo or depending what glass was on the table that it was dangerous. And I learned how to avoid certain things. When I got a little older, the violence got a little tougher because I guess I was able to handle it more. But I also became, what would be the word? I would throw myself into it and say, yeah, I'll get back up. And then really what happened is around the age of 13, I finally defended myself. And that was the last time my father ever touched me. And that was the beginning of a belief in transformation that has, has never left me. Because it was in that moment in time, I realized, you know what? I'm powerful. I can protect myself. I don't have to succumb to this, even though succumb is not a word I would have thought of as a 13-year-old child. And I started really planning what would move me further and further away from my father? I was thinking about, you know, that hope for transformation or confidence in transformation. Would you say that that was your major coping mechanism when you were going through that? Was that your, your way of saying, I'm not always going to be in this? 100%. 100%. I, I used to draw a little doodle, which was, it was basically a cube, but I would draw the lines out to basically where they would cross. My father was an architect, and this is all very funny because maybe if I had a good relationship with my father, I may have become an architect because I loved drawing and I love shapes. And so I would draw this doodle, and when the lines crossed, 
if you go far enough, you could make basically the same shape on the other side. It's like a mirror image. And I'd fantasized about there was a point somewhere. I didn't know where it was. Maybe this is because of the Star Trek era. You know, <laughs> I had the little toy that it was the little doll for boys and you would like spin Dr. Spock or something around in the, in the toy and he would go somewhere. I don't know, it was really weird. But at some point in time, I would cross that point. Like it existed, I just needed to find it. Plus his mom, which was my paternal grandmother, was at my side and she would, she taught me about contrast. She would say, look at your father. You don't wanna be like that. She'd say things like, look, he's weak. He doesn't know how to handle himself. So I was also learning that, hmm, okay, these are examples of what not to be. And it's up to me to craft and find what I should be. And I know that sounds very heavy for a 13-year-old, but I started going to work at 5 a.m. in the morning. At 13 back then, I'm dating myself, right? But you could find a job. Your mom just had to sign a piece of paper. Mm -hmm. And all of that really just came out of, something inside me that person you were talking about then is your grandma so she's offering to you as a child the thoughts that there's a different way to to be yes she actually it's not politically correct anymore but i i'd like to say the the quote because it uh, it's meant with the utmost respect in the way it was said but she would tell me that to live life like a gypsy, meaning that there's so many opportunities. Don't stay fixed in a situation. Learn to move, learn to see what else is out there. And really she was to a certain extent, my, my type of life coach, which is, which is very funny when I look back on it because she gave me hope, she gave me inspiration. She helped motivate me. There were many times when I didn't think things would change, but there was always, she had this ability to talk about like, it will happen. There, there is movement in life. And that's so much of what I carry today. So much of who I am. And my mom says all the time, oh, well, I guess it was just your grandmother that she's the only one that left, left a mark on you. <laughs> <laughs> so, but there was something in, and I think maybe because I didn't know my grandfather, he died before I was born. Mm -hmm. And so here she was, this Southern Italian woman with a fourth grade education. She was a seamstress. And yet she just embraced life and that there was positivity. She had a degree in life is what she had. And uh, she was observant and she cared deeply about you. And she saw what was going on and was giving you hope. And that's yeah. that transformation. Now, as you, as you got a little older, you said at 13, you stood up to your dad and that thing started to change. So when you got into adulthood and now you're getting ready to go to school, you're in school, what have you, how did your experiences as a child and coming out of that situation impact who you were at that phase in your life? That's a great question. And Really, my motivation during that period of time was anger, mm. which is not sustainable at all. But there was this anger of not wanting to be like him, of having him in my life. 
that led me to pursue money. In my mind, money was going to save me. Money was going to give me freedom. It was going to just change my life. So I just was so concentrated on studying and doing and making sure I could go away to college because I didn't want to live at home. And I paid for it myself. So it wasn't that I could go to, you know, Harvard, maybe if my grades were good enough, or let's leave alone the SATs. <laughs> but, but, you know, I was able to go away to school. And it was just this constant pursuit of getting to this point where I was going to be completely independent. And then I met an amazing woman that showed me that anger was not sustainable at all, uh, showed me the other side. There were good things about my dad. I remember nice things that we did, but the majority was not. I was always not, I felt not wanted, not good enough. Um, I've written three books. My dad used to beat me when I was, was a little boy that boys don't write. You know, that's, that's not a masculine thing to do. They don't draw, they don't color, they don't. So it was just this idea of accumulating, getting money and protecting myself around that. Got it. So, uh, you know, as a child, you felt this uh, hope of transformation, but it sounds to me like you felt the path to that transformation was money. Yes. That's the path you had to follow. If you chase the money, the transformation would come and you're dragging along that path, anger toward your dad and what happened when you were a kid. And then you, you met your wife, the woman to become your wife, Desiree. But when you went to school, you went to college, what did you study in school? Now, this is, this is very funny because I had always been interested in biology, though I was a great math guy. But biology really interested me. And my mom's dad, so my maternal grandfather, would buy me all this medical stuff. And he would say, you know what? Um, you're supposed to be a doctor. You're going to be a doctor. You're going to be the first doctor in the family. And I thought, okay, doctors make money. But as soon as I went to university and I started looking at what was ahead of me, I was like, I'm not going to make money fast enough. And I switched into economics. And the whole, this concept of my, you know, look, I grew up with Dynasty and Dallas and Gordon Gecko. And <laughs> Greed is good. <laughs> Greed is good. So money was going to save me. But I just needed to get it as fast as possible. So, Rob, let's talk about the woman that you married, Desiree. How did you meet? Wow. Okay. If we're going to talk about Desiree, how much time do we have? Because I can talk forever. <laughs> uh, so how did we meet? It was actually her first day of freshman year at Stony Brook University. I was a sophomore. And not to give a, a story away, but she basically pursued me. <laughs> and I was so not necessarily on that track at all, especially with, you know, the situation with my family and everything else, I really thought I wouldn't want a relationship. And I told her that soon after we met, but Desiree went after what she wants, let's just say. She had other plans. 
Yeah. <laughs> so you've ended up in this relationship and how did it progress? And uh, how long were you dating before you got married? Well, so we were that, that sickening couple that was always together, holding hands, kissing whenever they could in every oh. corner, everywhere. And basically soon after meeting her, I was speaking to my mom on the phone, a pay phone, because at that time, of course, there were no cell phones. I said, I met the woman that I'm going to marry. And I was only 19. And basically a year after I proposed and we got married because we were in college, we decided to, of course, wait until we both graduated. But it just felt 100% right. Like there was just nothing wrong about it at all. Um, there was no anxiety, no worry, no frustration. It was just, and it's not this thing about soulmates and we completed each other, but it was this feeling of tranquility. Like we just blended, but yet we were very much opposite. But it was, we blended, I, I would say more on a values level, though I couldn't have expressed it then in terms of values. And that was it. And we got married right after she graduated. So in 1989. 1989. Now, you had mentioned before that you used to sort of default to anger a lot. And you mentioned that when you met her, things started to change for you in that area. How did that happen? That, that, that's a great question. Um, Desiree, she had this uncanny ability of exuding empathy, just so tangible. But she spoke a lot about, I don't want to say doing the right thing in life, but she always talked about the fact that you know, life should be fun and you have to let go of the past. Like she knew all about my father. She knew I didn't want to ever go visit. I didn't want him at the wedding. Mm. I wasn't even going to invite him. And she said, no, of course we're going to invite him. So, and it's not that she played middle person to get us to get, because my, my father and I, we, I forgave him, but I never made peace with him. Okay. I never wanted to speak to him as little as possible. I engaged with him up until the day he died. So, but she was, because she just was this giving, loving person, and she was just so, she had this childlike enthusiasm that it was infectious. Mm. And that type of enthusiasm can't live with anger. I love that when you say contagious, that is such a natural way to have an effect on someone if an individual is exuding peace, happiness, uh, love of life, even if you're wired differently than that person, there's an effect that that has on you. And it sounds to me like that really had a, a wonderful effect on you. Now, as you started your life together, I understand you were, you were both very busy. You were still pursuing your career. And she also uh, had a career that she was pursuing. Could you tell us about that? Sure. Uh, super brain. <laughs> uh, incredibly intelligent. And she enrolled in the MD PhD program at Mount Sinai Hospital. So while I was moving up the ranks of investment banking, she, she was doing this program where she was an MD PhD. Her PhD was on physiology and neurophysics or something like that. I oh. can't even remember what the, <laughs> I know it was a nicotinic 
choline receptor something or other and but <laughs> oh so, good yeah, luck she, for that <laughs> exactly exactly uh, <laughs> yeah. but she was you know she the reason and this is what is so amazing about that sort of embracing life and we had that same belief in terms of embracing possibility and uh, experience and living outside our comfort zone she said i want an md phd because I want to do it all. I don't want to limit myself to just be a medical doctor. I also want to be able to do research and, and help on that side. So she was always very broad that way. And we just, we were the typical, not the typical, because of course, at the beginning, while I was making money, you know, her school cost a lot and they were just, they were, there were a lot of things. I mean, it's not like we had a lot of money. There were lots of nights we ate, you know, hot dogs or um, if McDonald's had a sale on hamburgers, we would go and buy a hundred of them and freeze them. And, you know, that crazy stuff like that, because we were investing in the future we wanted. Right. But we were pursuing in a way, the image, I guess, of the quintessential New York yuppie couple, right? You know, that was sort of the dream, the, the, the vision we both had, though she wanted to go live in, the, you know, she wanted to be doctors around the world, you know, doctors without borders. <laughs> so, uh, I'm not surprised yeah. to hear that at all. So to tell me, did you have a power tie? I did have a power tie. I did. I, I could also tell a story about that one quickly. I worked for a gentleman, remember, way back when the work environment was a lot different. Yes. So there were no women in my office men smoked cigars in the office mm -hmm. and i worked for a guy that one day called me into his office and took a scissor and just cut my tie and said you bought this tie off the street it's embarrassing and it's true i did buy it off the street he then gave me his credit card and said go to Saks fifth avenue and buy yourself a respectable tie <laughs> and that became my power tie that's crazy i See, my ties, they would have more trouble cutting mine because they were polyester, I think. <laughs> I don't know what mine was made of, but I did buy it off the street for like five bucks. So. <laughs> I remember my dad would, he, he would go crazy if he thought you paid more than like five or six bucks for a tie. <laughs> so you're working hard. There's bills that are coming in for Desiree's education, but you're moving toward a dream together. What? Had you solidified what that looked like? Because you talk about, she's thinking about Doctors Without Borders and you're thinking about making money and advancing in the finance field. How did that sort of come together to a common dream or did it? It's a great question. It did come together in a, in a common dream because I started seeing the non-utility in money, right? And money does get more things, uh, but money can't necessarily change your inner core. And so what our dream became, and it's funny because my wife, we both had this same belief, but she used the example of DNA because, you know, the doctor had to use DNA, right? A relationship is like DNA. You know, the, the strands bow out and then it takes work to get back to the center and then you keep going in that direction. And the idea of our lifestyle was moderation, was giving, 
was respect. It was a lot about how we wanted to live, not necessarily what we wanted. And we got to that point where when we first got married, for example, we lived in a, a studio apartment, a six flight walk up. We were there for 13 years because I was refusing to move because I was like, no, we're going to save money. You know? <laughs> like that. Yeah. And, and she's like, I want, I want an apartment like a real adult. And we would have this argument over and over again. And then we realized that all of that stuff we talked about wasn't what made our life. Right. It was what we were doing together as a team. And we actually did view our relationship as a team. That's really interesting to say that because I think sometimes couples, they march down their own paths, yet they're together and those paths cross here and there when they have to. But then there's other times where there's those, the parallel lines just don't meet. <laughs> and yeah. when you say you were a team, I mean, you, you both had very uh, big goals, you know, for achievement but you were doing it together and you're both doing very different things. Yes. Wouldn't you say? Yeah. Now, sadly, you had a, a big change happen in your marriage because of uh, Desiree's health. Could you tell us something about that? Of course. And what I would say is to a certain extent, the outcome was better teamwork, <laughs> which, which is interesting, right? But I had just been offered a job in the Middle East and the money was great. I thought the experience was amazing. Desiree was finishing up her PhD and she said, you know what, take the job because I'm so busy anyway. And in a year, I'm going to finish my PhD. So I'll come out and live with you. But in the meantime, we can meet in a different country every six weeks, which we actually did. And so all that money I was supposed to save, we didn't save a dime, but that's it. I was just going to say that. So, I mean, you needed that money to buy more ties because your boss kept cutting them up, right? <laughs> exactly, exactly. Uh, so he, here I was in the Middle East. She came out after her P, she defended her PhD before going back to medical school because the way the program works is two years of medical school, PhD, the final two years of medical school. Right. So... She said, I'm taking a sabbatical. She came out to live with me. And to get a residency visa in the United Arab Emirates, you have to go through a medical screening. Okay. And we just decided to do a full physical because she hadn't had one in a while. And they diagnosed her with late stage breast cancer before her 31st birthday. And it, it was just, as, as anyone would expect, I mean, a diagnosis of any kind is a shock. For me, it was just incredible to think that this woman that jogged every day was in perfect health, had extensive breast cancer, localized, but extensive. And so she had the radical mastectomy in the United Arab Emirates. And then we flew back to the United States to interview doctors. The interesting thing in this whole experience, and it's, it was a Desiree thing, because she never knew her GPA from university. She didn't know her score on the MCATs. Desiree only ever wanted to know she was doing her best. She didn't believe in judgment of any kind, including herself. So she asked me to fill those things out. So when she was diagnosed, the 
male doctor told me the diagnosis first. Now, not because he was Muslim. Really, honestly, to tell you the truth, he was a rather young guy himself. And here's an expat woman, very young, with really aggressive breast cancer. And I don't think he knew how to break the news to her. So he told me, and when I went to tell her, she said, Robert, I know enough to be dangerous to myself. I only want to know the next steps. Don't tell me anything about my disease. And so I became the surrogate to a certain extent. And there were times that, of course, she had to know certain things. Uh, but this is where I started to really understand purpose. I, I really, I had to learn about surrender. I couldn't fix her, especially when the cancer came back. She was very aggressive in her treatment. She wanted to be very aggressive. So at that time, they were doing stem cell transplants for breast cancer. It was experimental. She said, I'm going to do it. She said, I'm young enough to take everything they can throw at me. So I want every single thing they can do to eradicate this. And it was proven that it didn't do anything for breast cancer, but mentally it was what she needed to do. But I sort of lived with the belief, okay, we did everything possible. We can put this behind us. And when it recurred, I didn't even know how to breathe. I truly didn't because I realized at that point in time, I couldn't save her. There's nothing at all I could physically, I, you know, I went crawling on my knees in the Lords in France and I took Desiree through in the, all the doors of the Jubilee. I mean, I did everything possible. We went to India, saw gurus. I was like, whatever, whatever I could find that we can do, let's do it. And, um, but it, was in that moment I had to really realize what surrender meant. But being the surrogate was so purposeful that it was joyful to a certain extent because it was a gift I was giving her. Yeah, you talk about a gift, a uh, gift, but there's a, an enormous amount of pressure too. It's a privilege that she selected you to be in that role, but it, it was also a lot of pressure, particularly when you were facing such difficult pushback from the disease itself. How did you then develop as a person? Because you mentioned as a child, you always were holding on to the hopes of transformation. So I'm picturing you hoping that that transformation is Desiree getting better. What happened with that innate sense of optimism when Desiree wasn't getting better, when the cancer came back? That, that's so introspective. That's such an insightful question. And wow, it's, it's just amazing because there's so much to unpack there. So one, and this is where it sounds very odd. I was very lucky to have grown up the way I did because I had a lot of skills I could draw upon to deal with adversity, deal with uncertainty. But that idea of transformation, when it recurred, I realized I couldn't hope for some, even though I was trying every way which possible to, to find a miracle somewhere, I couldn't hope for that miracle. Maybe what I could hope for is it would be chronic, but I couldn't live in sort of this fantasy world. But what happened with transformation as what, what happened with hope is I took it from long-term 
to today. Transformation that today would be the best day possible. Hope that today would be the best day possible. And so while that need, that drive for transformation was ever present, it was a present focused moment that, okay, we can transform right now. We can be closer as a couple. We can have more fun. We did become like kids as well. I mean, we just laughed and joked all the time. And there was one moment where she was, she loved lilacs. So we would go to the Brooklyn Botanical Garden during the spring and she loved to sniff them. So like she, I don't know, she was putting her head in the bush to really like get all the smell of the lilacs and her wig got stuck and we couldn't get it unstuck. And there she is, bald headed people are looking at we are laughing hysterical, tears running down our face. And, you know, people were laughing with us because that was where the transformation was taking place. It was to let go of the unnecessary. Oh, wow. I mean, what a great answer to give me uh, on my question, because, you know, I think so, so many times we're always thinking about the future transformation or the future worries or fears that we miss out on today. And today is the only thing that we're guaranteed, right? Um, yeah. So if you could, in that moment, you're with the person you love and you're laughing over something that other people might say, what, a, what an awful thing. I, I need this problem, you know, getting my head stuck in the bushes on top of the disease I have. And you took the opportunity to laugh. And what I noticed was taking time to smell the roses. You've heard that cliche. Well, she literally was. And even the other day I was walking along and it was this beautiful flowering shrub. And it was, uh, I don't know flowers too well, but it was giving off the most beautiful aroma. And I thought, oh my goodness, when do I really stop and smell those smells of nature and just say, you know, thank you. Thank you, God, <laughs> for it, you know? And that's this whole idea of, of gratitude. That was part of the transformation. And, and gratitude is, is so important but gratitude is not listing five things. Oh, you know, I'm very happy for this beautiful thing and that beautiful thing. It's that emotion. Mm. We're actually grateful for the emotion that it brings up. And so we were able, literally, I can look back on our relationship and the level of intimacy that we had was absolutely incredible. And physical intimacy, unfortunately, the last two years of her life was, was impossible. Um, also, because she went through a stem cell transplant, she had this aggressive type of menopause. And so there were, there were lots of sexual issues from that moment. But of course, then her body was just too weak. But there was, there was so much more to the relationship and so much more to life. And we connected and valued the ordinary moments and what those emotions brought up. And it's a quote that I walked away from, I used during her memorial and I've carried with me ever since. And it's that we only live in extraordinary life when we value the ordinary moments. That's it. Well said. Well, Rob, so Desiree lost the battle. I really should say you both lost the battle as far as the disease was concerned, but it sounds like you, you won in so many other ways in the way that you enjoyed each other really till the end. Now, when that end came, you had been in the role of, uh, you know, you said surrogate, you were managing her, the medical information and sort of, you know, translating it into her care and explaining it to her. And she's a doctor. So 
that must have been a pretty daunting task for somebody who, yeah, I'm, I was a finance person myself. I mean, we're, we're not doctors, right? You know, how did you, when she got sicker and sicker near the end, how were you managing talking to her about her situation? What, what was or wasn't left to do? How did you deal with that? Wow. Great question. I will say I learned, I could diagnose people probably. I mean, I, I, le I learned a lot over the 11 years. Um, we also had an amazing oncologist that helped me craft, let's say, stories. Now, Desiree was very well aware of, of certain things. And of course, when her physically, when her body really started to change, but, you know, there were plausible explanations. Like you're losing a lot of weight because the chemo you, you're on has destroyed the lining of your small intestines. And so therefore, that's why you're having all this diarrhea. And so you're not absorbing nutrients. And, you know, there were plausible things I knew how to say. It wasn't necessarily, again, it wasn't overwhelming for me at all. And I'll, I'll share something else that I came up with during this whole thing is that purpose is when your passions come in alignment with your values and you want to give the results away. You're not looking to hold on to anything. So seeing her smile, seeing her laugh, seeing her achieve, that was my reward. And so it wasn't heavy because I knew it was an investment. And this is a strange thing. You're a finance guy, right? Yep. It was a losing investment long-term, but the investment in today was beyond measurement. And she actually became the founding director of palliative care at New York Hospital while having metastatic breast cancer. And I know a lot of that had to do with the way I was helping her manage her disease. So she didn't have to carry it as a weight. And she knew she directed her care the whole way. Like when we had to remove part of her liver, I'd say, look, you know, the cancers come back in your liver and there's two options. She said to me, which one is more aggressive in your opinion? I said, well, they want to remove part of your liver. It's not really something that they would normally do. Let's do that. Done. When it came time for her to end her journey, she ended it. She said to me in the hospital, she said, Robert, I'm tired. And I said, okay, baby, rest. And I knew she was telling me it's time to transition to comfort care. Because as a palliative care doctor, she taught me the difference between extending life and extending death. So I knew so much that I was able to communicate in a way that kept her coping mechanisms as whole as possible. But in the end, she also knew by that point, you know, I'm not going to rally this time or my quality of life is not going to be the same. And that's one of the most important things. Anyone that's listening to this about disease in general is that the disease should be managed for you to have the quality life that you want as best as you can. Desiree realized that there was a point in time she wasn't going to have the life she wanted anymore. And there was, it was only going to get worse from there. So it, it was her flag to say, all right, you know, I give up the rest of this journey. And a lot of people think, you know, it's so sad that Desiree passed away before her 41st birthday. But when I really look at it, you know what? If we measured life by the quantity of joy instead of the number of years, she lived a full, full life. Yeah, definitely full in so many ways, too. And you, you mentioned that she 
she wanted to to get the PhD so she could do research on top of her medical degree, and that she was willing to uh, you know to go on an, the adventure with you to the Middle East, and that she wanted to do Doctors Without Borders. She had that in her mind, and that she was involved in palliative care. So she, I mean, you talk about um, empathy for the people she was treating. I mean, she she was going through it herself, and who would be better equipped really to be to be walking alongside of people like that even if maybe what they're what they wanted the type of life that those people wanted may have been different than what she wanted but she had to respect what they wanted so that was that was key you mentioned that Desiree passed before her 41st birthday now you had been in this active role with her prior to the disease as her teammate, partner, husband, and then caregiver or a surrogate, as you said. And now all of a sudden she's gone. Huge void in your life. What happened with your coping mechanisms that you had developed, you know, when you were younger and also while you were walking alongside Desiree and her disease, what, what happened? How did, how did that work? Did your grandmother's, you know, uh, wisdom from the past come back into play that there's a, a hope for a new a new chapter. Did, where was that in your thoughts and heart at that time? Um, I was completely lost. There was, there was nothing. There was no thought at all. And I didn't go through the grief that people would expect because I knew it was the right thing that she passed away. And it, she was active in that as well. So, but I was, I was lost. I, I didn't know who I was, where I belonged, you know, there was this intense 11 years of being almost godlike in a way, managing so much, knowing that I was helping somebody survive. And it was so, so intense that after, after she passed, nothing seemed normal. Right. But I was also really burdened with a lot of debt and it wasn't just because of the medical system. And I wish she would have had life insurance, but you know, she was, she was 31 when she was diagnosed. We didn't think about life insurance when we were young. So, Mm -hmm. um, but you know, a lot of it had to do with the supplements she was taking the organic food way back then. I mean, it was very hard to find all the supplements we have today. Everything costs a fortune. So the one thing that came up immediately was run back to money get yourself financially sane. And so I went back to the Middle East and I threw myself in my job. I thought to myself, I don't care about life anymore. I might as well just make money. I have nothing I need to do. And I just kept my head down, making money, making money, making money, paying off my debt. But I couldn't distract myself from a completely changed perspective. Inside of me was was literally an acid pain that I was in the wrong place doing the wrong thing. And I had to sit down and finally listen to myself. And what that was, was the person she married, the person, the guy that loved transformation, the guy that loved possibilities, the guy that loved experience, not to be locked down, just wasting life away. And it wasn't because, oh, my my wife passed away, I should respect life. No, it was this voice inside me banging away. Absolutely incredible. It had always been there. And 
when I started listening to it and looking at everything around me, what I realized was I saw a woman chase her dreams. And yes, I was at her side to help make them happen, but she was stepping into the arena with or without me. And I thought, what is it I really want to do? What is it I really want to be known for? And I had always wanted to live in Italy. And everyone said to me, are you crazy? You're giving up that job in the Middle East with that money? I was living in a five-star hotel. I mean, like, you know, th those, those things don't happen, right? Like, mm -hmm. And I, I worked, my business partner was, was phenomenal and, and gave me space and time and all of this stuff. And everyone was like, but what are you going to do? You're throwing it all away. And I said, no, I don't think I'm throwing anything away. If anything, I'm moving towards something. And I don't know what wow. it is yet. Yeah. But I'm moving towards something, something that resonates with me. That's an interesting leap because you're, you're saying that, you know, you're not the same person you were when you were on that path of chasing money, that that was going to be your transformation path. You've experienced now for, for how long were you, were you and Desiree married? Believe it or not, um, her memorial for her death uh, was on our 20th wedding anniversary. She died a few weeks before our 20th wedding anniversary. I knew her for 24. For 24. So you had, you had gone through, uh, you know, 24 years and, and then of, of this person who is just, um, who showed love and, and, you know, pausing to smell the flowers and uh, all these ideals and things like that. So you were a changed person. You weren't the same person chasing the money, really, but you were trying to, to jam a square peg into a round hole by getting back into the, I got to make a lot of money and I'm going to live in a five-star hotel. And somehow this is, this is going to get me to either someplace I want to go, or, you know, I'll just sit here and hang until something else comes along. And you knew that that wasn't going to work. So when you took a leap and say, I'm, I don't know what I want, but I'm, I'm going to move here because I feel it's right. So you moved to Italy. Did you speak the language at all? I did not speak the language. I did not have a job. I did not know where I was going to live. And I didn't know anyone. Sounds like a great plan. <laughs> <laughs> but you, you know, the thing about, and it's, it's not, it's not necessarily you know, when transformation doesn't mean changing where you live and, and all of that other stuff, but transformation really means leaving the old to find the new. And there was this desire to live in Italy. There was also the understanding of impermanence because I watched Desiree deteriorate until she couldn't live anymore. And I realized to a certain extent, you know what, maybe there aren't necessarily mistakes along the way. So this is resonating with me. Let me go investigate it. I was teaching English for $8 an hour. So I still did not have any money. I paid off all my debts and basically left the day after. Right. Yep. So, uh, you know, financially was, was still an issue, but I was willing to make that investment just like I was willing to eat those hamburgers and hot dogs with Desiree when we first got married, because I wanted to see what I was capable of. It was more about what if I could pull it off? 
instead of what if I fail? That was what my motivation became. And I wanted to experience who I was because when Desiree passed away, what I realized is when I said I was okay, I didn't grieve because she passed away. I needed to grieve the death of Robert. It was so obvious that loss, and I'm an acronym guy, loss is the lack of self and security. I lost my identity and everything seemed unsafe. When I was ready to confront that and thought about, okay, if I'm standing here now, basically with a blank slate in front of me, because I don't have a wife to take care of, I don't have children, had gave away my dog to my brother. I mean, it was, you know, here I am blank slate. Financially, I realized money couldn't save her. So I wasn't so worried about the money. I figured I'd find it somewhere along the line. What do I want? What do I want to look back on? And I started to see a story of how I wanted to live my life. And I reverse engineered. Wow, that is interesting. That is interesting. And I, I want you to continue with that and talk about how you ended up getting into life coaching. Uh, but I wanted to back up a drop. You had mentioned about focusing in on the possibility of succeeding at something as opposed to the possibility of failure. Now, I know myself, I'm a very cautious person. And I find that I'm always looking at the what ifs uh, as far as the, the bad. A what if means, what if I take that job and I don't like my boss? What if I take that job and they transfer me to another state? You know, what if I'm going to hate the job? As opposed to what if this is going to be a great opportunity and I'm going to love it? Or what if I write this book? What if, uh, you know, it's a big success or something like that. I think a lot of people do. And a lot of people like, like myself will often look at the bad first because we feel that that deserves more of our attention. I think the, the bad, cause we can't have bad happen to us. And because we spend so much time parked there, we don't look at the really good that could happen to us. And it sounds like that's where you were going with that. Now tell us about how you got into life coaching and how you applied and what you applied from what you had learned as a child and through your time with Desiree to help you in doing that and helping other people. Sure. I want to circle back to what you said, because I, I think it's ex extremely important. So one, of course, for me, I just watched somebody pass away. So my risk sensor maybe was a little less than other people at that moment because everything imploded anyway. Yeah. Uh, even though I had the security of this new job, but we're biologically wired for the what ifs. It's actually genetic. It's, it's, it's what, how we survived as a species. The real tool there is the what ifs are valid, but if you stop at what if, you're blocked. Yeah. You have to move to if then. So what if they send me to a new state, like you said, mm -hmm. if they send me new to a new state, then you have to realize that you do have options in front of you. You aren't a victim to it. 
you can find solutions. That's one of the first steps in terms of breaking down those barriers and getting to the what if I succeed. But the question then is you have to be very careful. What does success mean to you? For me, success meant at that point and means today the attempt. It doesn't mean that it's actually I get everything I want. It's that I stood up. I got into the ring. There's a great book by Julian. I can't remember his last name now, um, but it's called The Flinch. And he talks about a fighter, right? And that if you flinch, you might miss like a swing coming at you. Mm -hmm. So when you feel that, move into it. Don't back away from it. Mm -hmm. And so that type of thought process, because from when I was a kid, I journaled. And I've always, I, I talk to myself a lot. Uh, <laughs> I talk to myself a lot through journaling. So I was journaling and journaling and journaling and journaling. And this is all the stuff that was coming up. That's what led me to life coaching because I said, you know what? Damn, I went through a lot. What's the sense of all of this if I don't learn how to share it with other people and help them with this? The second thing was life coaching to me was also I wanted to understand myself better. Yes. You know, I, I sort of went through this whole journey being Desiree's life coach in a very odd way, just like my grandmother was my life coach when I was a kid. But I was like, you know what? I really want to study and understand what this all is about. The third thing is I gave myself a challenge. I became a life coach in Italian without speaking the language. It was a way to learn the language, force myself to learn the language. So those three things combined led me to life coaching. But more than anything else, I realized, just as Desiree would say all the time, that her disease was a gift to make her a better doctor. All these things were a gift. And what was I going to do with them? And that is to pass it on to somebody else who is going through a tough time or needs to, to make some changes in their life. I love it when you say really the victory is in the, is in the attempt. It's such a different way of looking at it because we're thinking we attempted and we failed, therefore we failed. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? I mean, yeah. the fact that you attempted something is it shows something about your character. It shows something about your, your perseverance and your willingness to live life, to, to not be scared about everything around the corner. I think that's, that's terrific. Now, so when did you officially start to do life coaching for other people? In 2014. So Desiree passed away in 2000, in 2009, 2010, I moved back to the Middle East mm -hmm. and Basically around 2012, I never thought I would ever step foot in Italy, by the way, because Desiree's 40th birthday, her last birthday was spent in Rome and India. So, um, and by the way, when I saw the movie Eat, Pray, Love, which I hadn't read the book, but when I first saw the movie, I broke out in like hysterics in the, in the theater because the first two scenes are, are, are Italy, Rome and India. And that's exactly what my, the last part of my life was with her. But in 2012, I came to Italy for the first time and I realized I felt at home. But it was 2014, I, I started. And to circle back 
about that idea about the attempt and that whole idea of failure, it's all about what do you want to look back on at the end of your life? What's the story you want to look back on? There's a wonderful book by Bonnie Ware, which is called The Five Regrets of the Dying. Mm -hmm. She was a hospice nurse and she interviewed, I don't know how many people. And people have five regrets. And one of them is not living the life they wanted. And for me, my definition of myself, I came up with my own tagline with, with, in all of this. I, I have my own hashtag I think about every day is that I don't want to be afraid of letting go of something to move towards something else. I might not get there, but I want to know I'm making the movement. Think of Tarzan, right? He has to let go of one vine to grab the other one or else he's like just going to be hanging in the forest. Yeah, right? yeah. Otherwise, he'd be hanging from one vine and just swinging there. Yeah. <laughs> Not getting you anywhere, right? <laughs> exactly. Unless no, that's, that's the definition you want for your life, but it requires you to, to be intentional and conscious. That's what brought me into life coaching. It's that whole, I realized I had been doing that my whole life. Somewhere innate in me, maybe because, you know, I knew my great grandfather that came from this part of the world and he left when he was 13 and he didn't know anyone and he had no money and he didn't speak English and he somehow got into America and he did all these crazy jobs. And, you know, generations later here, I'm going to Columbia University. You know, you look at that, you realize the ripple effect of stepping out of your comfort zone is enormous. Yeah, that's terrific. And uh, so you, you wanted to share this with others and you got into life coaching, which is what you do now. And I wanted to ask you, if you had to say, what, what is your overarching mission, really, for your life coaching wow. business? Great. Is that fair to ask that? that uh, no, it's, it's, it's definitely fair to ask that. Interestingly, the, the life coaching is taking on its own transformation as, as I go through all of this. But literally, I would say it is to wake people up to live life on purpose with purpose, or to intentionally and consciously craft the life they want. That doesn't mean all these, I, these self-help books make me all crazy. Yeah. First of all, forget self-help. Let's call it self-growth, okay? Nobody needs help. Nobody needs fixing, okay? Let's, let's just kill yeah. that. Self-growth, okay? But the thing is, maybe this crafting your, your best life or whatever you want to call it, it might not have to be having a house in Napa with 10 bedrooms and you know, leave Instagram alone. What, what is it that makes you, what's essential for you to be happy? You, not what the other world has. And look, look at me, I live in a town of 900 people. You know, uh, I'm a New York City kid, but this is what I wanted to create. That is wonderful. And as I was preparing to speak with you today, I was thinking a lot about the fact that we are now uh, really beginning our third year in this pandemic. You know, we're still hearing about cases breaking out. People have been impacted. I know we have. I know pe other people who have. You hear stories about road rage and, and uh, you know, people just getting worn out and here you're a life coach and you're in the middle of what's going on uh, with this pandemic to people, their mental health. What kind of things 
do you see that are happening to people because of either the isolation or the fear or whatever? What, how does that manifest itself in mental health issues, in your opinion? Wow. Um, I'd say so much of it is individual. There's two things that I've noticed. One is this feeling of aimlessness that people just don't know where their lives are going. They, they, they realize what they were doing maybe wasn't what they wanted to do. And then they, they, they were in isolation and they started to think about everything that was around them. And now everything's opening back up and yet they're not sure they want to go back to what they had and they're aimless. But I don't know how to even make sense of, of all of this. Yeah. And it's, it's very overwhelming. There's another side to it, which is really, really incredible. How many people are suffering a sensation of guilt because they didn't use the pandemic to reinvent themselves? All of a sudden, they're looking and they're saying, I just had all this time to maybe become something else. And what did I do with it? I'm going to fall right back into the life I had. And they're very overwhelmed by that feeling. And the third is there's, there's a component of grief. And if you think about how I talked about earlier, that loss is a lack of self and security, people are having a grief response because their identity, whether they lost a job or whether they quit a job or whether they lost family or friends because of the disease itself, or there's been an identity shift, the world has shown to be unsafe. All of a sudden, this thing happened. And you know, we didn't have toilet paper in the United States for a while. I mean, crazy stuff, right? Mm -hmm. So, and really what has happened for a lot of people is all of a sudden they're at this inflection point because it brought to light many, many things that were maybe in the shadows. And they're like, so what do I do when I'm here? Yeah. What's the right move? And people are overwhelmed by that. One of the things I'd say to anybody is there is no right move. That's the whole funny story. We can't predict our lives. No. I mean, they can't predict the weather. So let alone, we can't predict our lives, right? But we get into this feeling of right steps and it's more about the next step. Right. Now, you've partially answered this question already, but, and I know everybody is different when you're coaching somebody. Everybody's got their own different set of circumstances, their situation, their way of handling things. But if you had a person who's feeling like, uh, let's use the example of that they feel a little, little sad, they're, they don't, they're not sure why. I mean, it's been two and a half years, but you know, they're maybe not wearing a mask, you know, places as much anymore. And some things seem to be opening up again, and maybe they're seeing a few friends or relatives again, but they're, they're feeling kind of in a funk still. There's something not, not feeling right about it. What, what's some way you might approach somebody like that in your life coaching? So the whys are important, right? The thing about coaching is coaching is really, it's not therapy, it's action focused. So while you want to look at the whys, you don't want to sit there in an archaeological dig forever, right? right? So you, you're, you're feeling this way. The question then is, okay, so what does it mean to you to feel this way? Mm -hmm. What would you like to feel? What are steps that you could take to feel that way? Because it, it all depends on 
like the, the first stage of any coaching is discovery to a certain extent, right? So you ask some key questions to sort of find out where the person is in terms of that. But all this, this stuff that we feel, all of it is normal. It's just sometimes we get lost in emotion because we don't know how to move forward with it. We have this feeling we have to just, oh, stuff it down. You know, I need to get rid of this. No, take it with you. This is a feeling you're having. Let's move forward with it. As you're moving further and further along, it gets less and less. You can think of it as like a vapor behind you, right? Yeah. So when you sit there and if someone is feeling sad and they're not sure that they you know, want to go back out, find out what does it mean? What does that mean? You know, just let's throw out a question. Okay, so let's pretend that you're somebody that you're really not comfortable going out, right? So, um, well, what's behind that? Right. What would happen if you go out? What is it that's blocking you from going out? And you start to uncover that. Mm -hmm. Then you start to test the realities of those things. Are they truths that you're telling yourself? Or are they something that's keeping you in a comfort zone because you don't know how to re-enter? Is there something that you're carrying with you that you don't want to have anymore and you wish you would have let it go before the pandemic and now you feel, wow, you know, it's been two years and I still have this thing. So there, there are many different pieces to it, but at first you have to do the discovery and then reflect on, on the reality of it because we tell ourselves a lot of stories. Yes, we do. And, and half the time, there is no truth behind them. But something that's really interesting, a lot of times we tell ourselves stories about bad things happening because when they don't happen, and we've trained ourselves to do this, by the way, it's, it's all physiological. But when they don't happen, there's an area in our brain that goes, ah, it's the relief. And we release dopamine that makes us feel good. So we're setting ourselves up to worry about a lot of things that won't happen. So we'll feel good that they don't happen. Oh, but the, the cost of worrying about things that are going to happen, even if they don't happen, you know, it's a big, it's a big cost that dopamine rush. I'll tell you, it's not change the dopamine rush. Yes. Good point. Well, you know, I, I can imagine based on your, your experiences as a child, as a young adult, the experience you had with your, your wife, Desiree, an amazing person. I wish I had met her. You know, you've, you've been through so many different trials and yet a lot of periods that you feel grateful for that you, you had those experiences that you did and you're bringing so many tools to the life coach it's a ministry in my idea that, you know, you're out there helping people to look at their lives and, and do things differently, sort of go out and try things. And that's it. You know, what life do you want to live? Let's, let's focus on that instead of regrets and, and fears and focusing on those things. So I think what you're doing is wonderful. And just this time that we've spent together and uh, we had a call, you know, a few weeks ago as well, we spent some time speaking and, you lend so much insight to different parts of our, our nature. And a lot of it is just, you've honed your skills through your own experiences. And, and that makes you just a really valuable asset to anybody who's looking really for some, some life coaching. How can people get in touch with you, Rob? How can people find out more about you 
and your life coaching. Thanks for asking that. I am going to circle back again because you said something that I think is, is so important about the, the idea of being grateful in a way for maybe some of the negative events. And one of my biggest beliefs, and it's something that I reflect on every day, I have practices where I reflect on things every day. Um, it's the question, are, are you happy with who you are? And it's, it's a tough one. Like it, You have to be really honest with yourself. Are you happy with who you are? Because if you can say yes, you have to thank all the crap as well as all the good things because they made you who you are. If you're not happy who you are, still give thanks to everything and then decide what it is that's under your influence to change, to get you to be happy with who you are. That negates all the crap that's happened behind you. That's why we don't go on archeological digs because it's about building who you want to be, not looking at who you were. Got it. That's, that's the whole thing. So if people want to get in, in touch with me, I have uh, three books, so they could go to three different websites, or they could just go to my own personal website, which is robertparty.com, where they can read a little bit of my story. And I have highlights of the three books on that as well. Um, and then my coaching methodology, and a bunch of other things that I'll be rolling out soon, which are virtual conversations, not necessarily coaching, uh, which I'm really looking forward to and retreats, hopefully here in Abruzzo. Terrific. Well, it has been an absolute pleasure speaking with you, Rob. You are an amazing guy and you live in a beautiful village. I know last time we spoke, you directed your, your laptop over toward the window and showed me outside. I was like, oh, I mean, I am a Jersey guy. I love, I love New Jersey, but I got to say that... <laughs> The scenery out your window is a little different than mine. <laughs> okay, so I, I think I told you the story before of how I got this house, but when the townsfolks were showing me homes here in Pacentro, they brought me to this one place, and it's much bigger than I would have wanted. And we walk in, and it's an under-the-Tuscan-sun moment. There are birds everywhere. It stinks. There's no windows. And I said, really? You want me to buy this? And they're like, go look at the view, but don't step on the balcony because it's condemned. <laughs> oh, that. And, and I'm like, you're kidding me, right? But <laughs> I, I look out to the view, which is of an open valley and the mountains of Abruzzo because it's in a national park. And I said, okay. <laughs> it's just boom, right there. I felt really special looking at that view and I wanted to wake up every morning and be able to have a cup of coffee there. Well, my wife and I might just show up on your doorstep. We'll only stay for a few months. No problem at all. <laughs> no problem at all. But uh, Rob, thank you so much. I really appreciate your time. And I really hope that people will reach out to you and find out more about you and the, your books and your life coaching. Thank you again. You're a great person to speak with, particularly during some of these times that are, you know, difficult for some of us. I know you're going to help a lot of people, and I'm sure you already are. Thank you. This was a great pleasure for me, James. All right, Rob. Have a great day. You too. Bye-bye. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Your History, Your Story. You can connect with us on Facebook and YouTube at Your History, Your Story, or on Instagram and Twitter at YH 
YS Podcast. We'd love to hear from you if you have any questions, comments, or a story to tell. Be well and God bless.